Herzlich willkommen to the Opera Box Score podcast for Monday, March 28. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. It's the third and final show in our three-part series introducing you to the opera world of Germany. Last week, I took you around Germany's smaller houses. Today, I started in Heidelberg and ended up in Munich. It's been a long day, but as a result, this show is loaded. My first guest is Lydia Steyer an American freelance director who works all over Germany. You'll hear her take on why she came to Germany to work and whether or not she wants to go home to the U.S. But wait, there's more. Later, I'm joined by Amy Stebbins, an American director currently working on a new project at the Bavarian State Opera. She's got a great take on the future of opera in Germany. We've also got this week's opera headlines, our Monday evening quarterback segment, and Oliver checks in from Chicago with a field report. We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. And what's more, on our show, you get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-218-9box. Again, 224-218-9269. You can also email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Opera Box Score is right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Shock Talk on Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. All right. Well, we got a fantastic show for you this week. I tell you, this lineup is absolutely loaded. Lydia Steyer, my guest on the show, also got Amy Stebbins in the house to be my guest. You are not going to hear... More articulate women talk about opera, talk about opera directing, talk about being American in Germany than these two. You have got an absolute treat coming up. Lots else in the program today. Uh, I want to make a few minutes of time for a thought. This is something I'd forgotten about last time I was in Germany, which was how long the curtain calls are. After a performance. Now, you know, curtain calls in opera have always been kind of a funny thing. Uh, If the show has multiple acts, and they usually do, sometimes you have people taking a bow after each act. This is something we would never find in theater. But in opera, what can happen is that a character is in the first act of the show, and that's it. Their part is over. So rather than have them sit around for the rest of the show, maybe even have to pay them to sit around. You want to acknowledge them, of course, so you give them a curtain call after the first act. Let's say the chorus is in acts one and two, but they're not in acts three or three, four, and five. Same thing. After the curtain comes down on act one, house lights stay down, curtain goes up, chorus takes a bow, curtain comes down, chorus goes home. Again, so you don't have to pay them. It's something that destroys the illusion of the drama. I can tell you that. I've never liked it. 
I've always found it really problematic. I understand it for financial reasons, but in terms of the feeling of an evening and how you want to lose yourself in a way when you're in an opera, it always is problematic for me. Here's what else is problematic in Germany is how long the curtain calls are. I've started timing the curtain calls to all the shows that I've been seeing on my trip. I'm a stats guy. You know that. I'm obsessed with the stats. And I'm going to tell you about a production of Parsifal by Richard Wagner that I saw. Uh, the curtain call was 10 minutes long. Now, when I say 10 minutes, you have no sense of how long or short 10 minutes really is. It's like a third of a sitcom, I guess, if a sitcom is 30 minutes. 10 minutes is a long time to clap. Now, what audiences will do is they'll clap when there's literally someone on stage bowing for them, and then they'll kind of, the applause will die out. And then someone else comes up on stage to bow, and then the applause boosts up again. And then, when you think all said and done, cast is bowed, conductor's bowed, the audience starts clapping rhythmically, which is their sort of signal, I guess, to the stage management to say, we want more, raise the curtain. Curtain goes up, you do the whole thing again. Everyone's got their solo bow when they bow just by themselves. We've got the orchestra bowing, the conductor bowing, the chorus bowing. It, it gets long. Now, admittedly, in this production of Parsifal, it's a five-hour show, so 300 minutes. Curtain calls 10 minutes long. So that's only 3%. I, I guess that's a pretty good return when I think about it. But it's something that i completely forgotten that we just don't have in America is these elaborate, lengthy curtain calls. So something to watch out for. Lydia Steyer, my guest on the show, coming up next. She has worked in the U.S., but mostly, almost completely in Germany. And she's literally one of three directors I can think of that's had success with this. She's got some great takes on opera right now. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist. Let's go inside the huddle. Lydia Steyer. Hello. It is so good to see you again after a couple of years. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, I never thought we'd meet up in Heidelberg. Beautiful Heidelberg. It's a funny place, isn't it? It's like college town without the uh, fraternities, I suppose. Yeah, you kind of feel the fraternities for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of loud kids running around on the Fridays and the Saturdays. And also, it's just, it's like, it's like Disney created a little German town for the pleasure of American tourists. It is extremely well preserved. Completely. It's like in this little valley, right? And then there's these mountains and this river. And it's so picturesque. So it picturesque is. as to be literally almost unbearable sometimes. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's adorable. It's a beautiful little city. You are, I think, one of literally three directors that I know that started in the U.S. and have come to Germany and have had great success as directors. I, I mean, I could count them on one hand. Um, so my question is for you, how did it all happen in the briefest of stories? Uh, how, how did it all happen? What was the reason for wanting to come here in the first place? And, and how did it all work? Well, I, uh, I studied voice. I wanted to be an opera singer. Um, 
at Oberlin Conservatory. And at some point during my time there, I became very disenchanted with the idea of being an opera singer and uh, went to graduate school for directing in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon. And at Carnegie Mellon, I had a professor that said, if you want to ever do anything interesting in opera, you've got to go see what's happening in Germany. And uh, this is around the time of 9-11. And I just thought, screw it. I'm going to get out of the U.S. I'm just going to go. Leave. It's like This is a weird time anyways. And so I got a Fulbright. Um, uh, actually, to study the, the situation at that time. In, in Berlin, there was three opera houses, which everybody considered was one too many. And so it was the one that they thought needed to go. Well, that, that was the debate. It was really interesting because, oh. like, each of the three houses had to, like, really hustle to brand themselves, interestingly, or, or, or essentially argue that they had a right to exist at all. And, mm. and I sort of wanted to see what it looked like when three houses in one city were, were, were essentially pleading for their lives. And, and so that's what I, that was the project that I said I was going to study. And, okay. uh, like so many uh, people that work in the arts, they use it almost like a, you know, refugee flotilla to get to <laughs> Europe and never come home. And 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 yeah, I just I I started being this like the directing hospitant, which you know is basically like an observership or an internship. Right. And uh, I was I found myself at the Komische Oper in Berlin at a really interesting time, when a lot of the. Um, the directors that are sort of now the captains of this business uh, were just beginning hmm. and and made great contacts that were very, very, you know, fruitful later on there. Like directors like uh, Calixto Bieto, who has, whose debut in the U.S., which is just so crazy that it's just now happening, is in San Francisco coming up. Isn't that insane that crazy. that guy has only just started working in the U.S. in opera? He's done theater before, I know. Right. But I'm, I'm astounded. Well, I mean, the, the stuff that he puts on stage, I think, is... I think most artistic directors are exactly aware of what's going to happen when his show touches their stage. But he's such a name now that it doesn't matter. Right. Like, literally, it, it's like... it's like um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like bringing your grandmother to see a John Waters movie. You can be like, <laughs> it's a John Waters movie. It's a classic. This is art. You know, rather than some some, you know, art film made by your friend that features people eating poop or something. You know, it's... <laughs> So you did the Fulbright, and you stuck around. Yes. Yep. Exactly. But that sounds very easy to say. But I mean, what was what was the work situation like? How did you how did you take that next step? I was willing to do pretty much anything at the Komischober. Like I was, you know, making copies, getting coffee, um, uh, and then later on because. I could read music. I was a musician. They needed somebody to be the stage manager for lights at larger German houses. A, a stage manager is the person that's back, basically backstage and tells everybody when things happen and where and who's supposed to be there. If you're a singer, you're sitting in your dressing room thinking about how awesome you are. And then you hear over the loudspeaker, you know, Mr. So-and-so come to stage. And then you go to stage. Um... If the curtain goes up or down, if a piece of furniture moves on stage, it's a stage manager that makes it so that happens. And at larger houses, they have a separate stage manager that makes all of the lights happen, that calls the lighting cues. There are sometimes hundreds or, you know, in, insane cases in Broadway shows, thousands in a show. And and so I was hired to call shows with the lights. And so and that was a further way to insinuate myself. And then at some point, one of the assistant directors, the hired assistant directors, was quitting. 
and I sat the intendant down. I basically ambushed him while he was, you know, having a moment to himself after rehearsal. And I said, I wanted to be the assistant director. God damn it. Period. And I think he was sort of, he admired my American pluck and he was like, yeah, whatever, fine. And, and so just, you know, slowly. That was not meaning to blow you off. That was being like, okay, you can do it. I think that's like, whatever, fine is like a huge, huge, warm statement from a German sometimes. (laughs) I think that basically is tantamount to saying, I love you in English. But no, 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 he said, yeah, fine. And then, uh, and then. Yeah, I I was an assistant, but this took about four years. Like it wasn't, it was. You have also worked in the U.S. um, And that was at L.A. Opera. Yes. Uh, Was there anywhere else that you worked in the U.S.? Um, As as an actual stage director? No. Regardless, I can still ask you this question, which is, you know, what are some of the big differences between the opera systems in the U.S. and Germany? It's something we've talked about on the show a little bit, and I'm wondering what your take is on that. Uh, I think the very basic main difference between the U.S. and Europe is in the German-speaking Europe. I'll put it that way. In terms of uh, opera, is money. I know uh, I'm very close to the people at LA Opera um, because even before I directed there, I had uh, a lot of. I mean, I assisted there. I, I was an assistant there for several productions, and 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 I know other artistic directors in the U.S. and. Essentially, their main duty is to hustle money mm-hmm. from old white people. That's what they do. You know, donor events and keeping the board pleased. And, and that's, that's something that a, a, an artistic director at, at a German house has to worry about almost not at all. Like, you are entitled as the intendant or the, or the opera house itself to a certain amount of money that is determined by either the state government or... Uh, or the city government, mm-hmm. and that's the pile of cash that you have, and 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 this has two big res- like it, it has enormous um, influence on on taste certainly because in the U.S. like the, the the artistic directors have to plan stuff that please these you know rich white people right. that they are constantly right. courting, you know, and so you have to you have to put things on stage that are that are pleasant and and. Uh, easily digestible and where these, you know, rich old white people can take their grandchildren and say, look, that's a pretty show. And right. and that's why opera in the U.S. looks so, like, to, to German eyes, completely anachronistic. It looks like something that had happened in Germany maybe in the 60s. Like, you see the big operetta wigs and the and the big ball gowns, and it, it's, it's, it's unfathomable. And here, because... Um, because actually the like market pressures, you know, a full house, good box office, et cetera, et cetera, it actually ends up being relatively irrelevant, hmm. um, which is not necessarily always a good thing. I think that's that's not unilaterally positive um, because they're free from the pressure of these rich white people that are the tastemakers. What can occur on stage here can be much more experimental. The The... Ability, the freedom to fail is is real, and I think it's also really important. Because yeah, sure, for for, for four really stupid productions that are completely like ridiculous and unnecessary, there's one that's brilliant. And and this, these moments of brilliance, those experiments simply cannot happen in the U.S. Uh, you're in Heidelberg directing a production of Wagner's uh, Der Fliegende Holländer, The Flying Dutchman. Uh, I caught just a snippet of it. 
in the rehearsal room. Can you just talk us through your approach to the production? And the reason why I ask this is because I, I think it's going to make our listeners, I think, surprised that you could take such a classic piece of opera and reinvent it in the way that you have. Yes. Uh, the Flying Dutchman, um, along with pieces like uh, Karl Maria von Weber's The Freischutz and and Lortzing's Wildschutz, these are such German stories. Like, it's super, super, super German. And the story of the Flying Dutchman is basically that... Um, basically, this sailor from a ghost ship lands on, on you know, the Norwegian shore and and is searching, as he does every seven years, for a woman that is so pure and faithful that she devotes herself to him so that he can finally die. And this is, it's about his search of this perfect woman, and then, of course, in this situation in the opera, he finds her, uh, and at the end, in a final sort of show of, of, of her deepest devotion, she, you know, when he leaves, because he's, he, he basically, he loves her so much that he decides that he's not going to take her into damnation with him. You know, he leaves on his ship full of ghosts, she jumps off a cliff, dies therefore freeing him and they both rise to heaven together to beautiful, beautiful Wagnerian music. <laughs> the music is fantastic. Uh, the intro to our show was the overture oh. from that opera. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Um, and it, it's interesting, like, the question, like, that, that one could take it from its original context. And um, there's a couple of reasons that we chose the, the context that we've put it in. It's for, for your listeners, uh, the stage looks like it's meant to look like these old pictures of West Point that we found. Uh, it's an elite military academy full of cadets. Uh, it's meant to parrot the architecture and structures and forms, also costume-wise, of uh, the U.S., more or less sort of around the time of the Korean War, but also with a few twists that make it a relatively clear reference to the National Socialist time in Germany. You can never really quote that. You have to tickle it out. You can't, mm. yeah, you can, like, they don't, they don't like a lot of... It can't be overt. It has to be subverted. And yeah, 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 yeah. You can't, like, sort of wag your finger with the lesson. You have to sort of slide it under the door. Mm. Um, but, uh, and, and so the idea is... You know, we, the, the Flying Dutchman obviously has so much to do with the ocean and water and conflict on water, and we wanted to take that and put it uh, in a situation where we could also be politically critical. Um, what one sees at the beginning of the piece are all these cadets, rather than sort of the, the, the sailors on the, the deck of the ship, you have a bunch of cadets uh, basically learning about the glory and fun of being a Marine, and, and how cool war and conflict is. And then you've got the Hollander that in our situation is actually this soldier that's been through every war that's ever existed. You know, the Crusades and the Thirty Years' War, and, and he's there and he's just like riddled with all sorts of wounds and he simply can't die. And so the juxtaposition comes from these like these kids that have never seen battle that think it's the coolest thing in the universe. And then this, this creature that shows up and he essentially, he's, he's, he embodies the waste that war has created over over generations, and 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 what we actually end up seeing through the I, I'm a great believer in the in the use of a chorus in a show as not just a bunch of singing people, but as actual figures, as a, as essentially the framework. It really, the the the, the um, 
it's difficult to say, like the population, the sort of moving, thinking, breathing population of an event, basically. That's for me, the chorus. And they go from being perfect cadets, and the women also in this very famous scene where they usually are spinning at the, at the, at the, at the loom, basically. <laughs> uh, we have that, you know, there are a bunch of Rosie the Riveters building together bombs happily and, and helping out the war effort. And, and the entire thing is built to create this, this very, um, like, superficial joy about the glory of war. And then when the ghost chorus arrives, this is in the third act of The Flying Dutchman, when, when this, the, the Hollanders' shipmates finally sing, and we realize that it's a bunch of dead people on a ghost ship. Uh, all of these students that had previously been so just blindly enthusiastic about war go mad. They realize that, 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 you know, this is not some newfangled, new weapon-related joy that they're about to encounter. It's, it's, it's a misery that has stretched out for generations behind them and will do so for generations in front of them. Um, I, I'm often asked why specifically by my grandmother when she sees my videos like okay. like I'll show her a trailer and she'll look and she'll be very nice she'll nod and be like um are you going to do a traditional opera at some point okay <laughs> she's just like oh oh god is this you know and and there's like a lot of drag on my stages and you know penises everywhere and... but how would this production be received in the US do you think I think that I don't think it would go over well. I think specifically that people would say, "Why can't it just be like Wagner wanted it?" And 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 the thing is, you can't do that here. Literally, it, I, you cannot put a boat on stage. You can't do a traditional production. You simply can't. And the funny thing is, if you were to do so, to put an American style, super traditional production on stage here, it would be taken as an ironic commentary on a traditional production. <laughs> You can't. It doesn't exist. Like, the possibility of doing, like, a, I don't know, like some sort of, like, you know, Pittsburgh opera, you know, clunker with, you know, rented costumes from the New York City Opera archive from I the mean, 70s. it would be laughable. It would be laughable. And, and it wouldn't just be laughable. People would, like, they wouldn't laugh at it. They would look at it and be like, what is this saying about conservatism? And, like, it would be, like, the very lack of message would be taken as a message. Like, there is nothing on a stage here that is not, you know, taken as, as something that, that competence, that, that has, like, a, an intellectual life to it. You can't just, there's no such thing as just plonk it on stage and, you know, say what the composer wanted and that's it. Like, the, and that's what, it's kind of the reason that I can't go back to the States. The reason that I love working here is, is that degree of storytelling, like, that living, engaged form of storytelling when it comes to this material is 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 really only possible here. So you really have no interest in ever going, I was going to say back home, but I guess I should say back to America. I would call it back home. I am, like, between you and me and your listeners, I, I'm dying to go back home. I really am. I really am. And I think that there are some companies that are doing really interesting things. Uh, I think that this, this, this thing that's occurring right now, that bigger companies are basically putting together smaller venues to do interesting work. They know that the rich white people are not going to be okay with, you know, a lot of, you know, blood and phalluses on their big stages, but mm -hmm. nothing to say about a small stage. And so you've got uh, LA Opera off-grand, you've got the new San Francisco secondary space, you've got, 
um, I mean, like everybody, everybody's coming up with a second space where they can, you know, buy in one or two like Beth Morrison productions and, and, and make themselves seem current. And I love Beth Morrison. I think what she and, and people like Yuval Sharon are doing in opera in the U.S. is exactly what needs to happen. Because with with the need to sort of constantly like do the do the dance for the rich white people on big stages, you, you there's no chance. There's no chance. I would love to, however, work in the states. I'm I'm desperate to do so, and I hope that 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 I hope that these small stages end up changing the landscape for the big stages at some point to the to the point that I could actually be working in the US. So then what what do you want to see uh change or what do you uh expect that is going to develop in this art form that we know and love in the future? German system or American system? Wh- whichever. Um I think that we're at a period right now in the German system where it's going to end up being a lot more about entertainment. Uh and entertainment is a dirty word in German. It really is. If you say, like, Unterhaltung, that's the German word for sort of entertainment, they really, they think it's like like a stupid operetta or a musical or, like, high art is not supposed to have anything to do with Unterhaltung, mm-hmm. which is entertainment, and that's bad. It should be like, you go to the theater and you learn something and you eat your vegetables and you like it. And you walk out five hours later and, you know, think I, these are five hours of my life that I can never get back. But still, it was good for you. Um, and, and I think now, specifically, uh, because of the success of Barry Kosky's tenure, Barry Kosky is an Australian director. He's about 50. He's, uh, um, he was the, I mean, he ran, I think, the Adelaide Festival for a season. And then he came over and ran the Schauspielhaus in Vienna. And then was freelance for a long time and is now running the Komische Oper, one of the three houses in Berlin. And what he's managed to do is brand the living poop out of it. And he he's turned it into a place where operetta and musicals and really, really fun, colorful productions of opera can just coexist. And nobody sits there and says, okay, this is like a variety house or this is this is low art. He's sort of managed to make low art things like musicals into great works that people have to travel long distances distances to see and he's made great opera into something that anybody can sort of stumble in and be cool about and enjoy and i mean it's coming down to also they have uh, translations for all of their texts in a billion different languages including turkish which i'm pretty sure it's the only opera house that's actually offering their repertoire to the Turkish public, which is enormous, actually, in Berlin. And and I think that the moment right now is, at least in Europe, it's turning against, I think I think you mentioned in a former podcast that you spoke to Tilman Knabe. I mentioned one of his productions. I had not met him. Right. Well, Tilman Knabe, like, for me, he's like the standard bearer of a, of a sort of form of, of German, this, this, like, anti-enjoyment aesthetic. <laughs> It's like, I'm going to the theater, and I know I'm going to hate it, but it's good for me. He's the spinach of He is, opera. yeah, he's seriously like the spinach of opera. Um, even though I like spinach, so I have to think of something. For me, he'd be like the marzipan of opera. Like, yeah, but anyway, he he's a nice guy. I know, I know him personally, but he it, it, the, 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 the aesthetic that I'm describing is essentially every stage has huge slabs of broken concrete on it. Everybody is wearing some sort of military uniform from today. You know, be it Middle Eastern dictators or 
you know, trench, no, we don't have trenches anymore, but sort of, you know, a lot of American symbols, a lot of American flags for no good reason. Uh, everybody's got a machine gun. Uh, people are, there's a lot of blood bodies, like a lot of extras lying around dead that are at some point cleaned up by a hazmat crew. Women in stockings and their underwear. Oh yeah, clearly, obviously, because women can't actually be anything but, you know, there has to be stockings and lingerie and smeared makeup because we are in a post-apocalyptic society. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like, uh, yeah, I mean that, that's going away. For those of you who listened to the podcast last week, you will have heard my top five list of things that you must have on stage in a German opera production, and Lydia has hit about three of those in one fell swoop. <laughs> totally. Totally. The, the other ones are like, you know, an entire chorus of people in gray suits and bald wigs, like the bald hats, like just like that don't do anything. They just sort of like like shuffle to the front of the stage, sing something, usually something, something, what is it, like, you know, really, really joyful with a deadpan face, and then they sort of, like, shuffle off. Maybe there's shackles involved. Maybe the shackles are made of gold to talk about, like, the capitalist man. I don't know. It's, it's fun. <laughs> anyway. Um, but, uh, yeah, but it, I think there's a real turn right now to what the Germans call Handwerk, which is, like, knowing where to put people. Mm. You know, not just, uh, you know, this, this eat-your-vegetables form of theater is going away, and I really do credit that in large part to Barry Kosky, um, and, and what he's done at the Komische Opera, and what he's done as a director in general. Um, he's managed to marry very, very, very clever theater and uh, being entertained by the experience of being in the theater, like enjoying yourself, to have like a, the real sensual pleasure that I think we all search for when we go to an opera, the, the, the absorption of the music and, and the reaction to the story, and, and to also just have your brain and your eyes and your heart you know, electrified at the same time. You know, not have, you know, your ears happy and your brain screaming, why in the hell is that happening? You know, to and, and it's, it's it, I think it's a really exciting time to be here. And I think it's actually a cool time to be an American working in Germany because there was a long time where they were just like, oh, you're too, you know, you're too American. And then I'd write to the U.S. and they'd be like, you're too German. And I was like, great. So I guess I can work in Greenland. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a cool time. I think entertainment is back. People want choreographers. People, even, you know, people are putting stuff like, you know, Cabaret and Kiss Me Kate onto, like, actual real serious um, uh, season planning, you know, at, at big houses. It's, it's a moment where people, maybe it's a reaction to how rough things in the world are right now, but people want to come to the theater and be entertained as well as being made to think at the same time. And that is a kind of theater that has been actually kind of absent in Germany and it's coming in now. Mm -hmm. Lydia Steyer, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me. Uh, you can go to our website. It's operaboxscore.squarespace.com. You're going to find a link there to Lydia's show at the Opera House here in Heidelberg. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This just in, the two-minute drill. It's time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. There was panic at La Scala in Milan last Friday night when minutes before the curtain rose on Verdi's I Due Foscari, the conductor Michele Mariotti came down with a high fever and flu symptoms. Someone remembered that there was a young guy from Milan who had assisted on a production of the opera at the Royal Opera House in London. 
They found a phone number for the man in question, Michele Gamba, who jumped into a taxi and raced to La Scala and saved the day. Boston Lyric Opera, in the wake of a decision last fall to leave its longtime home at the Schubert Theater, has unveiled both the details of its upcoming season and the state of its search for a new home. The new season will feature four different operas to be staged at four different venues, including the Boston Opera House, and where the season will open with Bizet's Carmen, directed by Calixto Bieto. Other productions are Mark Anthony Turnage's Greek, Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress, and Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. The drama doesn't end at English National Opera in London. Music director Mark Rigglesworth has resigned. Eno wrote that Mark, quote, will continue as music director until the end of the season and will then return as a visiting conductor in the 2016-17 season, end quote. Eno is also looking for a new artistic director. Wolf Trap Opera in Washington, D.C. began streaming video of last summer's production of John Corigliano's The Ghosts of Versailles. It's the start of a new initiative for Wolf Trap that will involve video dissemination of a number of its upcoming productions, all in the name of getting its young artists more visibility. And that's the Two Minute Drill. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Amy Stebbins, up next on the show, got an interview with her that I did here in Munich. She's got some fantastic ideas about how opera could work better in this country that is Germany and what the relationship is between Germany and the U.S. What are those similarities and differences that we've been talking about on this show all through this series? Sit back, relax, and enjoy. You're listening to Opera Box Score. With George Cedarquist. Let's go inside the huddle. Amy Stebbins, here we are in Munich. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, George. So glad you're here. Thanks for uh, taking some time to hang out with me and talk about opera. I want to kick it off, put you in context for our listeners. Um, How did you get to Germany? This isn't the first time you've been here, so give us the the two-minute version of your your travels back and forth and back and forth um my experience in germany began in 2006 when i did a a, you know a semester abroad in college and uh during that time did an internship at the sophienseele in berlin in the artistic administration uh department um and i enjoyed myself so much that i applied for a fulbright after i finished up college got that and got to spend a year at the volksbühne in berlin and, uh, you know, sort of did a number of assistantships working in different departments and still couldn't quite figure out what was going on at that theater by the end of my year. So, And I, it was a theater in that it did only plays, right? The Volksbühne. The Volksbühne. Actually, the second play I worked on there was an opera directed by Sebastian Baumgarten, who's a director. Um, oh, I mean, he's a pretty well-known director here in Germany who does both theater and opera, and he hired a freelance orchestra called the Babelsberg Film Orchestra that, you know, sort of rents itself out to places. And it was a production of Tosca, actually, um, that sort of 
used both actors and opera singers as sort of a, a multimedia extravaganza. Cool. Here you are again back in Munich, and what are you doing this time around? Um, now I'm here on a German Chancellor uh, Fellowship, which, as you know, because you had one too, um, is an opportunity to uh, pursue a specific project with a specific institution. So I'm at the Bavarian State Theater uh, here in Munich, where I'm working with the dramaturgy department to uh, to better the relationship between artists in the U.S. and the artists in Germany, because it's my sense that that's a relationship that's gone lost over the past decades, and people working in the U.S. don't know what's going on over here, and people over here don't know what we're doing in the U.S. And I'm also directing a production of the Bavarian State Opera that's going up in June. Uh, and what is the piece that you're directing? It's a new piece. It's called Mauerschau, which is really hard to translate into okay. English. But it's a word that basically means, you know, when you're watching uh, a play and someone's describing something they see off stage, um, maybe something that really would be very hard to put on stage, like 700 soldiers marching down the field. And so an actor stands on stage and describes what they see. Um, that's what a mawashau is. It's normally used for cases of violence or war when you don't want to stage it, but you want to have it as part of the evening. So this opera takes that device as a way to to question how it is that we get information about war today and why we should believe that information. Wow, I'm so bummed that I'm going to miss it, but uh, we will put a link to the show oh. on our podcast website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com. Amy, you have been back and forth between America and Germany. You've lived in Chicago, which is our hometown. In your opinion, what are some of the big differences between the two opera systems in America and this country, Germany? Money. <laughs> <laughs> it's Money is the big thing um, because... Opera and theater is publicly subsidized here. There is less of a concern to recuperate costs from the box office, which means that you can experiment more, and it means that making a bad production isn't the end of your career. And that makes for, I'd say, the bandwidth of what productions look like for you know, um, it, it is much wider. You have great productions and you have terrible productions. Whereas in the U.S., because you have to be concerned about mm, getting audience, about selling out, you end up with a lot more sort of middle-of-the-road productions. It can't um, all be good, of course. No. Obviously, there's a lot of money being thrown around the German opera system. But, I mean, what, in your opinion, needs to change in Germany about the way opera is produced and programmed? Say one of the biggest things that Germans could work on is um, is diversity. The uh, One of the great things about Germany is that the houses all have ensembles. So as you as a singer can have a, 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 a yearly salary. Um, but if you look at these ensembles across the board, they're predominantly white. And when I say predominantly, I mean like 99% white. Um, so that's one thing that they don't, you know, as compared to American theaters, which I think really take diversity very seriously. Um, I mean, they can always do a better job, but I think they're, they're working hard at it. Um, it's not on the radar of people here. And that's something I'd love to see is, you know, the ensembles that I'm working, I'm working with having more people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, who are some of your colleagues that you've worked with or directors whose work that you know that you really admire? Um, 
so there's work I admire, and then there are people I admire, and they're mm-hmm. not always the same people. One director I really like is a guy named Frank Kastorf. He's the artistic director of the, the Volksbühne, which is where I was on my Fulbright. Um, he makes very political, very, mm, um, I would say, very playful productions. Uh, on the other hand, he's... Um, I hope that he'll never hear this, but I, he's a very, very aggressive person in the rehearsal room and doesn't always treat his colleagues with the kind of respect that they might, uh, might deserve. Right on. Uh, let's look to the future a little bit now. Our show is all about kind of hot takes on the here and the now and what's going to happen next. Uh, what do you think is going to happen next? How do you think this art mm. form is going to change in this country and and what do you what do you see that advance being that's a great question because i think right now we're standing at the cusp of a, an important transition the one of the things that i think a lot of people in the us hear about german opera is that it's controlled by the director and you know frank kastorf's a good example he did the ring in bayreuth uh, in wagner's festival a few years ago um, and he's a prime example of this sort of incredibly powerful testosterone filled directors who intervene in the pieces and we're coming to the end of that audiences aren't interested in it anymore and also the you know i would say the institutions are interested in it where i think that's going now is work like there's a director here in munich named david marton and what he does is he begins to play in the score he's a director who um has a purely musical training background he's a he's a conductor and a pianist and what he does when which i think is going to be happening more and more is he takes the time to sort of deconstruct the music and put it back together again rather than just the scenic elements and i think that the more that big institutions who can hire composers and can have long-term collaborations let's say a composer a conductor and a director can work on adapting a classical piece musically uh, over the course of, let's say, two years. I think that's where things are heading. Where is some of the work being done in this country that you're really into? Theaters, um, actually. The theaters have basically appointed themselves the home of experimental opera because not all of the operas are, well, let's put it this way, the certain aspects of the opera houses or certain departments are not interested in theatrical experimentation, but mainly the orchestras. Orchestras are very conservative bodies generally. They do not like changing things, and they have great unions, so they don't generally have to change things. Um, But where things are... I think for Germany, an interesting place is the Komische Oper, which is a theater in Berlin that is very dedicated right now to rediscovering the lost tradition of German operetta, which was lost uh, basically uh, when the entire Jewish theater community was uh, either deported or exterminated, or both. Um, that, That phenomenon led to the creation of the American musical, in a large sense. A lot of those people came to New York and, you know became the the canon of American musical theater. And Germans for many decades have ignored that part of their tradition. And Barry Kosky, uh, Australian director of Russian Jewish descent, has made it his mission to bring that tradition back. Something we've talked a lot about on our show is about 
how wacky and wild many German productions tend to be. Mm. Um, I've seen lots of examples of that. You've seen lots of examples of that. But is there a place in this country for sort of so-called, quote, traditional productions? Or is that something that really just does not have a space to exist? I guess it depends on what you mean by traditional. Sure. Um, Because there's traditional in the sense of not playing or intervening into the work which would be like the text and the and the and the music and then there's the traditional which seems to be this american sense of how the original production was staged and that's a fallacy there just there there is no record of how Monteverdi's Orfeo was originally staged. And to be quite frank, I don't see why the reconstruction of that would be interesting for anyone. That said, there's a lot of theater in, or in a lot of opera in Germany where you don't have naked people running around with bird hats on. That, that exists. Um, you just have to, um, basically leave Berlin, which I don't think a lot of American theater makers who spend time in Germany do. There are tons of small theaters, and there are also big theaters, like the Bavarian State Opera. I mean, they they, they do about work that's on the level of the Met in terms of experimentation. Some pieces are more, some pieces are less. But there's a great Robert Carson production of Hansel and Gretel here right now that was from the Met. And there's nothing radical or crazy about that piece. Amy Stebbins, thank you so much for hanging out and being on the show. Thank you. All right. In this week's field report from Chicago, my co-host Oliver Camacho debriefs us on the Ryan Opera Center's Rising Stars concert and previews a week full of Monteverdi. This is what he tells me in an email. Debriefs, Oliver, why do you got to make it so dirty? Fröhliche Ostern von Chicago. This is Oliver Camacho filing a field report. Hello there, Germany. I had the pleasure of attending a Ryan Opera Center Rising Stars concert on Saturday. Uh, this is the Young Artist Program, sort of the finishing program of Lyric Opera of Chicago. Usually this show is a parade of arias, uh, but this time they had a really brilliant program that was a diverse selection of ensembles and arias um, from repertoire ranging from Mozart all the way up to Carlisle Floyd. The concert was semi-staged by director Matthew Ozawa, who shouldered the blame for the production of Nabucco, which we talked about. Uh, earlier this season, I have to say uh, it was a mistake to blame him for the criticism. Uh, he did an amazing job helping these young artists find the dramatic essence of each scene uh, without the benefit of costumes or set design, all the while allowing them to look glamorous. Uh, and they only use the floor once. You all know that's my pet peeve with staging. Um, great job on that, Matthew Ozawa. The 2015 and 16 class of the Ryan Center also shows diversity with singers ranging from South Africa to China to Japan and the remainder of them being uh, good old American singers. This generation of artists does not seem to shy away from contemporary opera. Uh, like I said, the selections included a nice amount of 20th and 21st century works, uh, which may be the strength of these young singers. 
The selection that received the most enthusiastic response from the audience was the second act scene from Poulenc's Dialogues of the Carmelites between Blanche de la Force and her brother, the Chevalier. Mezzo-soprano Annie Rosen embodied so much strength and resolve, and in the final moments of the scene, allowed the audience to see just how much effort her character required, how much effort was exerted to deny her brother uh, collapsing onto the floor uh, in fear before our very eyes. Uh, very, very vulnerable moment. And uh, yes, she was on the ground, but it was entirely worth it. The singer who seems most ready for an international career is Laura Wilde, W-I-L-D-E, a graduate of Indiana University and St. Olaf College in her third year of the Ryan Center. If you saw this winter's Rosenkavalier at Lyric Opera, you might remember Laura Wilde as Mariana, who stole all of the scenes that she was in. And this summer, she makes her European debut at the English National Opera as the title character in Janacek's Janufa, if they survive. Uh, Laura Wilde was tasked with the toughest assignment of the night, uh, the disturbing monologue and prayer from Janacek's Janufa. And then she backed it up with a soaring Arabella after the intermission. Uh, I was very impressed by Laura Wilde. The Bryan Center uh, has a very deep roster of men, and they are growing Verdi baritones there, such as Anthony Clark Evans, and even Barahunks, or maybe bass Barahunks, uh, with Richard Olarsaba. Jonathan Johnson uh, ended up being the evening's protagonist uh, with three selections, uh, delivering first a very uh, risky aria from uh, Berlioz's Les Troyens. This is Au Blonde Cerez, which is like the French version of the prize song from Meisterzinger with a very exposed high C. In the second half of the concert, he was the arrogant but then tender brother of Blanche as the Chevalier, Chevalier de la Force. And finally, the evening was capped off uh, with him singing in the quartet from La Rondine, uh, Ruggiero. Uh, this is a quartet that has a handful of high B flats, uh, which show Jonathan Johnson's gorgeous tone quality, uh, a tone quality we probably will be paying a lot of money to hear in the very near future. Overall, I had a great time at the Rising Stars concert, and I cannot wait for the next one. Elsewhere in Chicago, uh, the vocal scene has been kind of sleepy. We just completed Holy Week, and if you know a classically trained singer, they probably were very busy with their church job. But next week, everything ramps up again, uh, especially when it comes to the composer Monteverdi. Uh, the music of the Baroque will begin this weekend uh, with three performances of the Monteverdi 1610 Vespers, this isn't exactly opera, but if you like Monteverdi operas, you shouldn't need much convincing to attend, uh, like many great composers who dabbled in sacred music and in opera. Monteverdi was able to uh, characterize some of the heightened music of his shows by borrowing from the church style, and vice versa. He was able to bring earthiness and lust uh, to some of his sacred music, by borrowing from his operatic style, such as in the Song of Solomon, which we hear in the Monteverdi Vespers. Let's listen to some highly charged and erotic Monteverdi, not from the Vespers, but from his opera, The Coronation of Popea. 
This is about a two and a half minute excerpt of music. So if you don't like Monteverdi, you can skip ahead. That was the third of four duets that Popea has with Nero in the opera, The Coronation of Popea. All four of them are very good. The fourth one is very famous. Uh, we heard Emanuela Galli and Roberta Mamelli in the 2010 deluxe recording directed by Claudio Cavina and his Italian magical band called La Veneziana. The Coronation Popea will be the student production of Chicago College of the Performing Arts on April 9th and 10th at Roosevelt University, open and free to the public, with Andrew Eggert, stage director, and musical direction by Gary Clark, who is a Baroque specialist, and the Chicago College of Performing Arts' very own Scott Gilmore. All of this Monteverdi can be found on the newest resource for classical vocal events in Chicago, VocalArtsChicago.com. Look for that website or find us on Facebook and like the Facebook page for updates. Now back to some German updates. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? <laughs> 
Here's Monday Evening Quarterback. All right, it's time for Monday Evening Quarterback. It's the segment where we review a show, and we don't do it in a highfalutin way. We just hand out some letter grades. Joined again by Amy Stebbins. Welcome back, Amy. Hi, George. I'm so glad you're here again. Uh, So you and I both saw this production of Verde's Un Ballo in Mascara. And uh, I'm trying to think of the most succinct way of talking about this story. But it's basically sort of political intrigue. There's a fortune teller at one point. Uh, there's romance, there's betrayal. There's betrayal. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty well-known piece in the repertoire. Indeed. Right? I don't want to spend too much time talking about um, the plot. I really want to focus on the production. And to start off with, um, to see if we can kind of describe for our listeners what it all looked like. It's going to help you if you go to our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com. There you'll see a uh, have a link that you can use to look at some pictures of the show. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting about the set design was that we were in one room for the entire piece, which is not the way that it is written. Um, that meant that they could use much bigger set pieces. Uh, as you the listeners can see, if they're looking at things, there's a giant, um, almost Hollywood studio film uh, spiral staircase yeah. that takes up about three quarters of the stage and then an expansive black and white checkered floor. Um, And that's a kind of piece that becomes very hard to move uh, if you want to do all of the individual scenes as normally uh, laid out in the libretto. In the middle of this floor was a large bed with a sort of a, a backboard to it and two side lamps. And that whole unit was reconstructed and hung upside down from the top of the of the space. So there was a false ceiling. And so essentially the entire design was mirrored from the bottom of the stage to the top of the stage with this um, soundstage staircase, as you described it, connecting the upstairs and the downstairs level. I have to say, though, I don't know what the piece was like down on the uh, on the orchestra level, but up where I was, you know, in the in the second balcony... I didn't even notice that the bed oh, was didn't? there for the first part. No, I noticed it was there about halfway through the first act. And then the sight lines blocked it. So it made it really hard for me to sort of follow that that step in the director's thinking. Interesting. How did that relate, do you think, this black and white color scheme, uh, this vaguely 1920s setting? I mean, people were wearing tuxedos and flapper hats and strings of pearls. Uh, I mean, how did it all relate to what the opera is about? I think they were the director was trying to find a, a, a historical milieu where you would have such concentrated wealth um, and concentrated political power that you would see in a time like the 1920s, but quite frankly, that you would also see in a time like right now. It was essentially the design was like, a Busby Berkeley movie or like a Fred Astaire film Mm -hmm. meeting M.C. Escher (laughs) uh, in this weird sort of geometric patterns and this... uh, It was beautiful. It was a beautiful set. I just don't know if it was serving the piece very well. Yeah, so I'm going to give the scenic design a B plus. What are you going to give it? I'm going to give the scenic design... um, I'm going to give it, I'm sorry, a a C plus just because, uh, you know... 
One thing I really like is transformation in an evening. And this room, although it was beautiful, did nothing. It had no development. It had no drama in and of itself. Right on. Well, let's move on to the singers then. And the main male role of the show is the character of Ricardo, which in the performance I saw was Peter Bexala. I think that's who yeah, you that's, saw that's as well, who I right? Saw as well. Um, but you saw a dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the performance there. It, his performance was fabulous. You know, as I said, I was quite far up uh, and he was incredibly expressive. He did, however, mark a lot of the more difficult passages. And marking is when a singer will sort of half sing or or just completely drop out in order to not, you know, overuse their voice during, you know, a, a practice session, more or less, which is what the dress rehearsal is. So you can't give a grade, in all fairness. No, I don't think that would be I'm fair. I'm definitely going to give him an A because it was, like, loud, clear. He's a, he's a fantastic actor. The male counterpart to... The character of Ricardo is Renato, and that was sung by Simon Kingleyside, uh, a singer that we've talked about on the show before. Um, he's a big dude. He's a big man. Like, he's not fat. He's just like... No, he's a huge person that, the, that he would lie down on the bed, and the bed would disappear beneath him. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, he's got a huge voice. Again, mm-hmm. I think he's a great actor. Really good diction as well. Beautiful. The show was sung in Italian. Um, super titled in German. <laughs> I'm obviously an English speaker, but like I could really hear every single word of the Italian from him. So, for my opinion, an A. And I give him an A minus, um, only because I I thought he was fabulous when he was lying down or sitting down, but he seemed to struggle a little bit. But what to do with his body when he was uh, when he was left standing on his own? The big female role of the show is Amelia. And that was sung by sort of like a local star, would you say? Um, that was sung by Anya Hardros, who's, uh, you know, I mean, she's a an A-class opera singer, but she's a beloved treasure of Munich. She lives in Munich. She sings at the Staatsoper all the time. She has a very dedicated following here. Um, I thought, I don't know about you, but I thought her performance was phenomenal. When she came on stage, my heart stopped. I had goosebumps. I almost called 911. Um, and especially her high piano, her very sort of soft, uh, high uh, passages, which are very, very difficult, uh, were, were so controlled. Um, I, I'm going to give her an A++. I can't give her a grade because she did not sing the show oh, that's that I so saw. Sad. Or should I say she sang the first half and then was not able to continue. Was she ill? She was ill. We were uh, given a heads up on that before the show began. This is one of the worst tasks of an assistant director is to have to go in front of the curtain and be like, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone's like, oh yeah, here we go. Who's sick? Mm. Uh, so she was replaced by Sonia Yoncheva. Oh, how is she? I thought she was marvelous. So... I say replaced, Sonia sang from the side of the stage, and uh, your gal, Anya, Anya uh, you know, did the blocking mm. and the staging. So okay. I've only seen this happen very rarely, actually, mm-hmm. and it's rather shocking and surprising, and then you just kind of, like, yeah. get used to it. I know? actually saw a production in Chicago at the Lyric Opera this summer. It was a children's opera, um, Second Life, where they only had four performances, and the tenor got sick for all of them. So they brought in another tenor to sing the role from off stage, and the tenor who was supposed to sing did the blocking and didn't end up singing in, in, in any of the 
any of the performances. But you can't cancel the show. No. You know, I mean, if it's a thing at Lyric that's a small thing, you know, you've got to have a backup plan. Obviously, if there's all those people there at the Bayerischer Staatsoper who want to see a show, you, the show has to go on. And what you saw was a sold-out performance, right? I mean, and the, the dress rehearsal was also completely sold out. I was so impressed with the chorus mm. of this show. It's Verdi. The chorus plays an important role. They've got some great music. Uh, there's not a ton of action for the ladies Mm-mm. of the chorus, but there's a lot of action for the guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a lot of choruses in many German houses. You have too. I've worked with the choruses. You have too. They can be really tiresome. Yeah. <laughs> and in general, those guys... Uh, can be sort of like collectively a big pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Like they don't take it seriously or their minds are elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, the chorus for this production of Balo seemed to be in the perfect uh, mood, I guess I should call it. Like every one of them really knew what they were doing on stage. They never distracted from the main action, but there was always something going on with them, which is, that's a very difficult thing to, to stage Mm -hmm. from the director's point of view and a very difficult thing to play as a chorister. What's your take? I mean, one of the great things about the chorus in Balo is that they're deeply involved in the intrigue of the whole piece. So they're, they're always, um, you know, they, they're, they're so strongly a character. They have, the chorus has such strong motivations and such a strong interest in the political ramifications of the piece. One of the things that I loved about the way that this was directed was that it was highly choreographed. You know, I mean, we've seen it enough of, uh, you know, hordes of choristers spilling out across the stage, standing awkwardly, not knowing what they're doing. And these people were really told specifically how to move. They were very choreographed gestures where they all moved simultaneously, and I thought they did a great job. So I'm giving them an A. You're You're going to give them an A. As well. Let's wrap it up by talking about the orchestra. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who was conducting the night that you saw? Mr. Zubin Mehta. Okay, so we saw the same conductor. Mm -hmm. First of all, how old is he? <sighs> Ageless. Yeah. Zubin Mehta will live yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely over 80, yeah, I think would over you 80, say? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that orchestra is fantastic. And with him conducting, I mean, there's no question. A, yeah. absolutely. The curtain call was great uh, because um, he came up for the curtain call and he didn't even bow. I think at his age, when you're that old, you're just like, ah, oh, screw it. I just, <laughs> I don't need, like, the back pain of, of mm. bending over in half. Uh, but the first time I'd seen him conduct, that was a total surprise. I hadn't done my homework, so I didn't know that he was going to be the conductor. A for him, definitely, and for that orchestra. I had the same experience. I did not do my homework when I popped into the dress rehearsal, and at the end I saw him, I, I was thinking throughout the production, my God, they sound as good as if Kirill Petrenko, who is the house, the, the main conductor at the house, they sound just as good right now as normally under him. And then at the end, this little old man walks on stage, and I thought, oh God, it was Zubin Mehta. <laughs> okay, now... A++ plus plus for, for Mr. Meta, for Maestro Meta. Well, we are wrecking the curve on this production because we have not complained about anything apart from the design and the direction. Have we forgotten to mention anything? Um, I think one thing that needs to be said, especially about Munich, is the, uh, the, the audience. The Munich audience, the opera audience here, is 
really uh, a dedicated and special group. They love their opera house. They're incredibly proud of it. They come more prepared than you and I came. Um, They see everything. They see things multiple times, and they are an incredibly involved and active audience. I want to give them them an A+. Here's where we're going to disagree, because I find the audience in Munich to be really uptight, and they're all extremely well-dressed, and they're all... (laughs) Very conservative. Even the opera house, the interior, which is very beautiful if you like Rococo. And uh, I'm happy to be inoculated against (laughs) that sort of lavishness with a very small dose of it. You know, there's like big burly guys that are standing in all the doors to make sure people don't go into like VIP lounges. And it's all very... It's too clean for me. Do you know what I mean? This whole city's too clean, and I see it in the opera house as well. So I, I want a little more grit to make my my pearl. So I'm going to give the audience a B. Oh. I'll say that. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Right, time for good call, bad call, and time to wrap this show up. Good call for me is that later this week I have got three shows in a row that I'm going to be seeing: La Bohème in Magdeburg, Die Ägyptische Helena by Strauss in Berlin, and then Zalame, also in Berlin, also at the Deutsche Oper. Uh, they're in the middle of their Strauss Wochen, which we talked about in the very first episode of our podcast series from Germany and excited to have that come to fruition. Bad call is getting really sick and tired of Wurst and potatoes. You know, I, this happened to me before last time I was in Germany and you reach a point when you're like, I don't want to see another piece of pork. I think I'll just have a salad. That's it for a podcast series from Germany. Special thanks to the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation and the Marilla Opera Program for their financial support of my travels. Our in-show announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. At WNUR, our programming director is Bill Scholne, and the general manager is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. Special thanks to Lydia Steyer and Amy Stebbins. Thanks also to Oliver Macho Camacho for checking in from Chicago. However you listen to our podcast, please let us know what you think. Be sure to leave comments and reviews. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Opera Box Score. Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. You can email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com and suggest a Chalk Talk segment. What topic would you like to weigh in on? Or join us for Monday Evening Quarterback and hand out some grades for an opera production that you've seen recently. On our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com. You can stream archived episodes and learn more about our team. I'm back in Chicago on April 4 and will be joined by the rest of the team. Don't miss our joyful reunion. Join us by listening to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to keep the conversation about opera going, especially on one of those super fast, super cheap, super clean German trains.